Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Judges. So if you have a copy of God's Word, you can open up to Judges chapter 9. If you do not have a Bible and you need a Bible, you can simply raise your hand and the ushers will bring you a copy of God's Word. We'll be reading Judges chapter 9, the whole chapter. That's page 198 if you're reading from a copy of our Black Church Bible. Judges chapter 9, this is what Holy Scripture says. Now Abimelech, the son of Jerubbaal, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jerubbaal rule over you, or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal Barith, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubbaal, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbaal, was left, for he hid himself, and all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all, and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. When it was told to Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the fig tree, You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the vine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now therefore, if you acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jerubbaal and his house, and have done to him as his deeds deserved, for my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian, and you have risen up against my father's house this day and have killed his sons, 70 men on one stone, and have made Abimelech, the son of his female servant, king over the leaders of Shechem, because he is your relative. If you then have acted in good faith and integrity with Jerubbaal and with the house and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech, and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Bethmelo. And let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Bethmelo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beer and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. Abimelech ruled over Israel three years. God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jerubbaal might come and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. And the leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against him on the mountaintops, and they robbed all who passed by them along that way, and it was told to Abimelech. And Gaal, the son of Ebed, moved into Shechem with his relatives, and the leaders of Shechem put confidence in him. And they went out into the field and gathered the grapes from their vineyards and trod them and held a festival. And they went into the house of their God and ate and drank and reviled Abimelech. 
And Gaal, the son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech? And who are we of Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Drubal, and is not Zebel his officer? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem. But why should we serve him? Would that this people were under my hand, then I would remove Abimelech. I would say to Abimelech, increase your army and come out. Then Zebel, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gaal, the son of Ebed, his when, excuse me, when Zubal, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gaal, the son of Ebed, his anger was kindled. And he sent messengers to Abimelech secretly, saying, Behold, Gaal, the son of Ebed, and his relatives have come to Shechem, and they are stirring up the city against you. Now therefore, go by night, you and the people who are with you, and set an ambush in the field. Then in the morning, as soon as the sun is up, Rise early and rush upon the city. And when he and the people who are with him come out against you, you may do to them as your hand finds to do. So Abimelech and all the men who were with him rose up by night and set an ambush against Shechem in four companies. And Gaal, the son of Ebed, went out and stood in the entrance of the gate of the city. And Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from the ambush. And when Gaal saw the people, he said to Zebel, Look, People are coming down from the mountaintops. And Zebel said to him, You mistake the shadow of the mountains for men. Gaal spoke again and said, Look, people are coming down from the center of the land, and one company is coming from the direction of the diviner's oak. And Zebel said to him, Where is your mouth now, you who said, Who is Abimelech, that we should serve him? Are not these the people whom you despised? Go out now and fight with them. And Gaal went out at the head of the leaders of Shechem and fought with Abimelech. And Abimelech chased him, and he fled before him. And many fell wounded up to the entrance of the gate. And Abimelech lived at Aruma, and Zebel drove out Gaal and his relatives so that they could not dwell at Shechem. On the following day, the people went out into the field, and Abimelech was told. He took his people and divided them into three companies and set an ambush in the fields. And he looked and saw the people coming out of the city, so he rose against them and killed them. Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city, while two companies rushed upon all who were in the field and killed them. And Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He captured the city and killed the people who were in it, and he razed the city and sowed it with salt. When all the leaders of the tower of Shechem heard of it, they entered the stronghold of the house of Elbereth. Abimelech was told that all the leaders of the tower of Shechem were gathered together. And Abimelech went up to Mount Zelman, he and all the people who were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a bundle of brushwood and took it up and laid it on his shoulder. And he said to the men who were with him, What you have seen me do, hurry and do as I have done. So every one of the people cut down his bundle and following Abimelech, Put it against the stronghold, and they set the stronghold on fire over them, so that all the people of the tower of Shechem also died, about 1,000 men and women. Then Abimelech went to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and captured it. But there was a strong tower within the city, and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in, and they went up to the roof of the tower. And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, a woman killed him. And his young man thrust him through, and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead... Everyone departed to his home. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads, and upon them came the curse of Jothan, Jotham, the son of Jerubbaal. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please take your Bibles this morning and open to the book of Judges chapter 9, Judges chapter 9. This sermon is entitled, 
Bramble Man and the Shechemites. Bramble Man and the Shechemites, which is an excellent sermon title, and also if you're looking for a name for your band, uh, Bramble Man and the Shechemites, I highly recommend it. When my kids were little, I uh, liked to tell them stories. Often I liked to sing them songs. I'd grab the guitar and just see what would happen. I had the intention when I would write these, not write them, speak these stories or sing these stories that they would all end with some profound moral lesson. Uh, Sometimes they did. Oftentimes they were just rather bizarre and they made very little sense. And what I find particularly annoying is these are the only stories my children remember today as adults. But a good story can make a good point. And that's what's going on in Judges chapter 9. There is, in fact, a story within the story of Judges chapter 9. And this story comes with some pretty important lessons. It is, as you can tell, a longer story, and it doesn't really work to sort of chop it into bits. You've, that's because the, 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 the moral comes at the very end. It's the last two verses that kind of explain, everybody's looking cheating, but uh, that's, that's kind of what pulls everything together about what the Lord is doing here. So my intention this morning is to kind of go through the story as it's laid out for us and point out some important little things that might help in your understanding of what's going on. And hopefully we're going to find the Lord in this story, even though he's only mentioned four times and two of those are at the very, very end. So I think what would be easiest is if we treat this particular chapter like a play, a play that proceeds in four acts, okay? Act one is this, Brambleman seizes an imaginary throne. Brambleman seizes an, an imaginary throne. This is Judges chapter 9, verse 1, Abimelech, who's Brambleman, in case you didn't know, uh, the son of Jeroboam went to Shechem to his mother's relatives, remember that little phrase, and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, you go and say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you that all 70 of the sons of Jeroboam serve you, rule over you, or that one rule over you. Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. Now, to understand what's happening here, you've got to go back up into chapter 8. And look at chapter 8, verse 30. Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. Shechem, if you remember, is a Canaanite city. So Gideon not only got spiritually ensnared by the golden vest, the ephod that he made, he also violated God's clear marriage prohibition. Jewish men are only to marry Jewish women. And he's got a Canaanite concubine, which is basically a kind of, and I'm sorry, this is offensive, but it's basically a second status, second class wife used primarily for sexual gratification. And out of this union with this particular woman, he has a son that he names Abimelech. Do you remember what the name means? My father is king. So if you had a son and you named him, my father is king, that would be saying something about you. You now know everything we know about Abimelech so far. Besides his sad origin, we can also discern that Abimelech is something of a political operative. He sends a private message via cousins and uncles to be delivered to the leaders in Shechem, the city of his birth, And he asks those leaders, his family, to ask the leaders these questions. Would you rather have 70 kings or one? 70 would be a lot of taxation probably. Would you rather be ruled by Israelites or by a fellow Canaanite? Because he's claiming his Canaanite blood over his Jewish blood. Verse 3. His mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem. And their hearts, the leaders, inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, yeah, he is our brother. (laughs) In other words, pragmatism rules. Blood is thicker than water. Let's get out from under this Jewish domination, become a so-called king. 
Abimelech, really more of a mob boss. That's his move. And just like the mob, it results in innocent people dying. Because you can't just make yourself king and hope that the 70 other guys who might be thinking they're going to rule are just going to disappear. So here comes his crime. That's his move. Here's his crime. Verse 4, they gave him 70 pieces of silver. The leaders did. Out of the house of Baal Barith, if you remember who Baal is, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jeroboam, 70 men on one stone. Now that's an easy couple of sentences to read, but it's full of evil and wickedness. Abimelech puts a, a price on each of his half-brothers, one piece of silver, which is not that much. And it's the price he pays for these vigilante warriors to execute one brother after another on a single stone, 70 men in a row, his own blood, his brothers. Even worse, the 70 pieces of silver came out of Baal's temple. So it is wicked blood money. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, was left, for he hid himself. And that's all that's said about Jotham. But as you can guess, Jotham will be important in this story. So he kills all his brothers. Then comes a coronation. Verse 6, all the leaders of Shechem came together and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. The oak of the pillar at Shechem where first Jacob in Genesis 34 and then Joshua in Joshua 24 chose that place to affirm their loyalty to Yahweh and to Yahweh's ways. And ironically, it's now the scene of heinous disloyalty to Yahweh and the betrayal of Yahweh's judge. Foreseeing this moment, the author of the book of Judges had written back in Judges chapter 8, if you look back there for a second, verse 34, the people of Israel did not remember Yahweh their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side, and they did not show chesed, they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. Gideon, nicknamed Jerubbaal, the one who contends with Baal on our behalf. They did not remember. They did not show him steadfast love. They didn't remember all the good he had done. They didn't remember the 40 years of rest that came under his rule. Dale Ralph Davis, in his excellent little commentary on the book of Judges, in this passage says, I'm not quoting, but it makes the point uh, that we should while we should never adore or worship our spiritual leaders, we are commanded to treat them with high esteem. And though it feels dangerously close to self-serving, I would remind you of passages like Hebrews 13 or 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 12 that says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. I have watched some bramble man in operation, not here, praise the Lord, but in other churches, especially over the trying days of the last three or four years, I've seen the betrayal of faithful elders by bramble men. And I just think it's a good little spot to remind us to, to just be settled in your heart, to love and respect your spiritual leaders. You don't have to agree with everything they say nor every way in which they lead. But there is never an excuse for betrayal. And, and frankly, there's never an excuse for anger. You remember what Jesus said about anger? You've heard it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. It might be just a good verse to meditate upon and then, based on your own personal history, uh, make things right if you want to. I, I don't know if Abimelech grew up as an angry man. It seems to me it's liable, probable rather. Uh, who knows? Uh, he's certainly an evil man, and that takes us to Act 2. 
Act two, we would entitle Fable Man. Fable Man pronounces a curse in the form of a story. Fable Man pronounces a curse in the form of a story. Remember that youngest son, Jotham? Verse seven, when it was told to Jotham, what was told him? All your brothers were killed on a stone, one after another. He went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said to them, the people of Shechem, listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. There's all kinds of interesting little things here. Jotham got away somehow by hiding. That's good. And while he's never called a prophet, he speaks rather prophetically in this event. And like all prophets, he calls on God's people to change their immediate behavior in response to his message. So he stands on Mount Gerizim, directly opposite Shechem. Mount Ebal on one side, Mount Gerizim on the other. Mount Ebal is the the Mount of Cursing. Mount Gerizim is the Mount of Blessing. And ironically, he stands on the Mount of Blessing to give a curse. He says, listen to me that God may listen to you. In other words, he's calling on the leaders of Shechem to respond correctly to the warning that he is about to give. If they do, if they listen to him, there is good reason to believe that God might listen to them and spare them for what they have done. And then he tells his story, the fable. It's a story, if you like this, kids, it's a story about trees, trees in a forest. And the trees want a king. And so they try recruiting four different people. Verse 8, the trees once went out to anoint a king over them. I just want to see the trees go out. (laughs) And they said, first of all, to the olive tree, reign over us. The olive tree said to them, shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go hold sway over the trees? No, thank you. Verse 10, tree said to the fig tree, you come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? No. Verse 12. And the trees said to the vine, you come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? This is an interesting little fable, isn't it? Olive tree, fig tree, grapevine. They are all asked to consider becoming the king of the trees, and they all say no. Olives, figs, and grapes provide the basic sustenance of life. In the Middle East, a sign of blessing in this day is productive olive trees, fig trees, and grapevines. And the key word there is productive. These three plants decline the offer of kingship because they're busy doing what they were made to do. They're already in their lane. They are being productive. They're contributing to society. And so in this strange-to-our-ears fable, the trees, of the, Torah, the trees of the forest now turn to a fourth option, the bramble. Then all the trees said to the bramble, verse 14, you come and reign over us. Bramble, uh, something similar to a dogwood, is a one to three meter high little bush tree, and it wasn't good for anything. It it had no medicinal properties. You couldn't put it in your garden. It it wasn't nice to walk through because it had thorns that would tear you apart. It's, It's not productive. In other words, bramble is good for nothing. Verse 15, the bramble, the good for nothing bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you're anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my, I'll insert the word, thorny shade. (laughs) But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. That sounds like a really like pleasant, you know, signing of the contract, right? (laughs) And so the bramble says, I'll rule over you, but if you ever act treacherously, fire will come out of me and consume you. And that's the end of the fable. Jotham's name means something like Yahweh is honest. And Jotham unpacks the meaning of his fable in honesty uh, for those of us like me who are going, what's going on with this story? So here comes the interpretation. 
And notice that the interpretation runs in large measure along the lines of who's acting with integrity or honesty. Verse 16. Now, therefore, if you acted in good faith and integrity, see that phrase again in verse 19, when you made Abimelech king, and if you've dealt well with Jeroboam and his house and have done to him as his deeds deserved, for my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian, and you have risen up against my father's house this day and have killed his son, 70 men on one stone, and have made Abimelech, the son of his female servant, king over the leaders of Shechem, because he's your relative. If you then have acted in good faith and integrity with Jeroboam and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo, and let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beer and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. Now we will learn at the end of this event that Jotham's words were like a curse and they were fulfilled. Shechem, the leaders of Shechem and Abimelech have acted corruptly. They have not acted in good faith. They have not acted with integrity. And since that is the case, Jotham calls on God. Presumably, he never speaks of God, but presumably he's calling on God to make sure that these two parties destroy one another, and they most certainly do. Like a couple of soldiers with those horrific flamethrowers, they're just lined up at each other, fire comes out from each, and they destroy one another. So there's Jotham standing on the mountain of blessing, dropping the curse. He drops the curse, then he drops the mic, and then he runs for it. And we will not hear about him again until the very last verse. That takes us to Act 3. Act 3. The demise of Brambleman and his band. The demise of Brambleman and his band. Verse 22. Brambleman, Abimelech, ruled over Israel three years, and God, oh, here's the Lord, sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. Drop down to verse 25. The leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against him on the mountaintops, and they robbed all who passed by them along that way, and it was told to Abimelech. So before three years are up, we've got another betrayal. And for whatever reason, Shechem's rulers, leaders, hire highway robbers in their own territory, in the territory of Shechem, their own land. And these guys are stealing from people as they're traveling through that land, presumably to stir up discontent toward Abimelech. What kind of stinking king is Abimelech? There's, he can't even keep the highway safe. This is called a false flag event. How did this happen? It was the Lord, right? It was, it was God. There was, a, there was a reason for it. Verse 23, God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. Verse 24, that, here's the reason why, that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jeroboam might come and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem who strengthened his hand to kill his brothers. God is enacting real-time justice. So everything that's going on in this part of the history is under the sovereign hand of Yahweh, even if nobody is paying any attention to Yahweh. But like all good stories, especially the stories in the Bible that highlight the secret providence or sovereignty of God, there is a sudden and unpredicted twist in this story. And the surprise twist here is a guy we haven't heard of yet whose name is Gaal, G-A-A-L, like Baal, Gaal. And Gaal wants to go to his hometown. Apparently, he's from Shechem. Gaal, the son of Ibed, moved into Shechem with his relatives, and the leaders of Shechem put confidence in him. So Gaal, Gaal has some roots in the city. He's related to people from here, and he, he comes back from somewhere we don't know where. Abimelech doesn't live in Shechem. He lives somewhere else, even though he rules over Shechem. So Gaal and his pals show up, and the leaders express to him somehow that they think, hey, you'd make a much better king than our current king. We're not, we don't like Bramble Man so much. 
And so Gael hears this, and he goes, yeah, right on, I'll do that. And that sounds like a good excuse for a party. So verse 27, they went out into the field, gathered the grapes from their vineyards, and trod them, and held a festival. That's a party. And they went into the house of their god, Baal, and ate and drank and reviled Brambleman Abimelech. And Gaal, the son of Eved, said, who is Abimelech, and who are we of Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jeroboam? And is not Zebul his officer? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem. But why should we serve him? If you read your biblical history, you'll know the name Hamor, who founded the city of Shechem. And so he's saying we need a true Shechemite to be the king. He continues, verse 29. Would that this people were under my hand. Then I would remove Abimelech. I would say to Abimelech, increase your army and come out. By the way, pour me another drink. (laughs) (laughs) Drunken speeches have started more than one war. And these partiers in the temple of Baal are cheering on the chants of Gaal of Baal as one of their own. So, what's going on? The politicians, the leaders, are creating a a mood for change with their roadside hired pirates, and Gaal is capitalizing on Abimelech's absence and some booze, but you can't rant and rave like that without the wrong people hearing you. Verse 30, when Zebul, the ruler of the city, he's kind of uh, Abimelech's henchman, he's there to take care of things. When Zebul, heard, the ruler of the city, heard these words of Gaal, the son of Eved, his anger was kindled. And he, Zebul, sent messengers to Abimelech secretly saying, Behold, Gaal, the son of Eved, and his relatives have come to Shechem, and they're stirring up the city against you. Now, therefore, go by night, you and the people who are with you, and set an ambush in the field. Then in the morning, as soon as the sun is up, rise early and rush upon the city. And when he and the people who are with him come out against you, you may do to them as your hand finds to do. So, verse 34, Abimelech and all the men who were with him rose up by night, set an ambush against Shechem in four companies. So they're outside the city walls of Shechem. And Gaal, the son of Eved, went out and stood in the entrance of the gate of the city in the morning. Maybe having a cup of coffee, leaning against the city gate. Feels pretty good to be me. Although a bit of a hangover. And Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from the ambush. And when Gaal, with his coffee, saw the people, he said to Zebul, look, people are coming down from the mountaintops. And Zebul, stalling tactic, said to him, oh, you mistake the shadow of the mountains for men. A couple seconds tick by, verse 37, Gaal spoke again and said, look, people are coming down from the center of the land, and one company is coming from the direction of the diviner's oak. Then Zebul said to him, to Gaal, where's your mouth now, you who said, who is Abimelech that we should serve him? Are not these the people whom you despise? Go out now and fight with them. Oh, you, you got to know Zebul is loving this. <laughs> All right, Mr. Big Talker, you wanted to take on my boss? There he is. Go get him. Verse 39, Gaal went out at the head of the leaders of Shechem and fought with Abimelech, and Abimelech chased him, and he fled before him, and many fell wounded up to the entrance of the gate. And Abimelech lived at Eruma, and Zebul drove out Gaal and his relatives so they could not dwell at Shechem. It's not exactly a big slaughter, but Gaal is ejected and order is restored. But Abimelech, you start to understand more of this man, he has not satisfied his bloodlust. He, he knows that the leaders of Shechem were against him. So, verse 42, on the very next day, on the following day, the people went out into the field, and Abimelech was told. He took his people and divided them into three companies this time and set an ambush in the fields. And he looked and saw the people coming out of the city. So in that day, you live in the city behind walls for security, but all your gardening, all your all your crops, that's all outside of the city walls. So every morning, the city gate would be opened, and all the normal people would file out to go tend to their fields. And this happens on this day, too. Apparently, all the Shechemites thought, well, Gaal's gone and his family's gone. I guess that little uprising is over. We'll just get back to, you know, back to basics. Come on, kids, it's onion harvest day, and out we go. Uh, so he rose, Abimelech did, against them when they're out in their fields, and he killed them. 
Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city of Shechem, while the two companies rushed upon all who were in the field and killed them. So Abimelech takes his group and blocks the door. That's where you would retreat. You try to get back into the city to be protected. You ain't getting in there. The two other companies slaughter the city and the citizens in their fields and in their gardens. Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He captured the city and killed the people who were in it. And he razed the city. It means he just he tore it right down and sowed it with salt. That, you would take salt and put it into the fields and now you can no longer grow anything. So not, not, not only did he almost kill everybody, he made that land uninhabitable, sowing it with salt, which is a rather odd thing to do when you're the king of that land. Verse 46, when all the leaders of the Tower of Shechem heard of it, they entered the stronghold of the house of El-Barith, which is probably the same temple as the Baal temple. Abimelech was told that all the leaders of the Tower of Shechem were gathered together. Towers like this are, are fortified hideouts. So there'd be lots of, you know, one tiny little door at the bottom, but it was difficult to get in. It was barricaded, made of stone. And so when your enemy comes, if all goes badly, you just run in there and you hide in there. There's lots of food and water and ammunition and stuff, and you just try to wait out your enemy. But Bramble Man ain't about to give up. Verse 48, Abimelech went up to Mount Zalman, another surrounding hill, he and all the people who were with him, and Abimelech took an ax in his hand and cut down a bundle of brushwood, almost like Bramble. And he took it up and laid it on his shoulder, and he said to the men who were with him, what you've seen me do, hurry and do as I've done. So everyone else did the same thing. They took it all, put it against the stronghold. They set the stronghold on fire over them so that all the people of the tower of Shechem also died, about a 1,000 men and women in that tower. So Bramble Man stokes a fire of bramble at the foot of the tower and everybody inside, whether by being burned or through smoke inhalation, dies. And he's still raging, <laughs> raging with anger and, and likely very arrogant and wanting to show off his power and quell all such uprising. Abimelech heads over to the next town, kind of like a Mississauga to Toronto is the Bez. It's part of the greater Shechem area. Uh, verse 50, Abimelech went to Thebes and encamped against Thebes, captured it, but there was a strong tower within that city too, and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in, and they went up to the roof of the tower. And Abimelech came to the tower, fought against it, drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire, because it worked in Shechem. Surely it's going to work here. Smoke them out, burn them up. But when Bramble Man knelt down with his bick to start the fire by the tower door, verse 53, a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head. It'd be about at least 50 pounds of stone. Crushed his noggin. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, a woman killed me. And his young man thrust him through, and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everybody went home. That is a sudden ending. The man who killed 70 of his brothers on a single stone is killed by a woman with a single stone. And just like that, the story ends. Everybody goes home. That takes us to Act 4, the moral of the fable. Was Jotham right? You bet he was. God punished Abimelech for his sins. Fire came out from Shechem. Metaphorical fire came out from Shechem in the form of a millstone. Verse 56, then God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. God can make random arrows fly towards certain joints in the armor. God can make stones out of slings go to certain foreheads. And God can direct the gravitational pull of a millstone to a man's head. God brought about the judgment. And God punished the men of Shechem for their sins. Fire, fire came out from Abimelech, literally fire. Verse 57, and God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. 
And upon them all came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam. They are all judged for their sins. And that's where the story ends. Now I will give you four takeaways. John Mahaffey always talks about takeaways. I thought, I thought of John this week. I'm going to give you four takeaways. Takeaway number one. The best men can be easily forgotten and betrayed. The best men can be easily forgotten and betrayed. Gideon, also called in this story because of his sort of after his death contention with Baal, Jeroboam, Gideon was not perfect, right? But remember Gideon, under, under Gideon's, under God's miraculous direction, Gideon was the instrument of Israel's latest and greatest political victory. He and his band of 300 lappers were the instrument God used to decimate a 135,000-man Midianite army. Seven years Israel had been hiding in the hills, barely able to survive with food because the Midianites would come and take everything. And Gideon brings about this huge victory. And then under Gideon as judge, there are 40 years of rest. There's no invading armies. Then Gideon dies. And now they pay Gideon's son to kill his entire family. All that to say, never put your hope in men. You could be a hero one day. You'll likely be forgotten the next. And if the human race is capable of betraying a Gideon, it's no wonder they so easily betrayed and murdered the Messiah. And he was perfect. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Why would they put to death an innocent man? Because God had purpose in it. Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Have you been healed? Spiritually healed? Have you turned to Christ in repentance and acknowledging your sins and your brokenness before God? Have you admitted to God that you really are a sinner? Or are you arrogantly walking around like, you're just fine, thank you very much, I don't need God and I don't need anything? God looks at you this morning and says, just as there was real-time justice for these guys, there will be real-time justice for you one day too. An eternity of separation from me in a literal hell that never comes to an end where you will spend out eternity, eternity, because you did not repent and you did not trust in Jesus Christ to save you from your sins. By his wounds, you can be healed. Gideon was a flawed savior, like all the judges before him and all the judges after him. Praise God for sending the one savior that all the others could only partially prefigure, our Lord Jesus. We needed a Savior who could save all the way, and we got one. He was betrayed, but he is not forgotten. Number two, takeaway number two, and this is a weird one, a little bit out of my lane, but an industrious life is better than a deceptive political life. An industrious life is better than a deceptive political life. Keyword deceptive. I am not proposing that it's impossible to be a Christian politician. I'm proposing that it's very difficult to do so well. In the fable of Jotham, the olive, fig trees, and grapevine are all busy doing what they're supposed to be doing and thus have no time for politics. We don't want to be king. Nowhere, let me be very clear, nowhere in the Bible are Christians forbidden from politics. But it is a very difficult thing to lead a productive life and a political life. I recall attending a, attending a meeting in my neighborhood, previous neighborhood, with our local city councilor. And I was talking with one of his aides after the meeting, and he explained to me that man's schedule. And I thought, 
I have no idea how he keeps his business running, and, and I'm sure he never sees his family. I suppose if you're going to press the flesh and meet constituents and do all that political work, it takes a lot of time and a lot of effort. All I want to suggest is that if you're thinking of a political life, don't stop leading a productive life. Productive in work, productive in family, productive in the things you know God has called you to do. Make sure you stay a fig tree if you plan to lead all the other trees because the world doesn't need any more bramble man politicians. Number three, sin leads to chaos. Sin leads to chaos. Here are the sins I can spot in the narrative. Maybe you can find more. Sexual immorality. Gideon gets a concubine, has an illegitimate son. Arrogance. Abimelech jockeys to become king of Shechem. Deception. Abimelech betrays his 70 brothers. Betrayal. The men of Shechem betray Gideon's sons and Gideon's memory. Murder. Abimelech systematically kills his brothers on a single stone. Treachery. The leaders of Shechem hire highway robbers. Boasting. Gaal says he can take Abimelech any day of the week. Anger. Zabul is enraged at Gaal. Sinful wrath. When Abimelech slaughters the citizens of Shechem and Thebes. Revenge. He raised the city, sowed it with salt, made it uninhabitable. Pride. Run me through with your sword so it won't be said of me I was killed by a woman. Sin leads to chaos. One sin leads to another. There is no repentance, no humility, and there is no restoration in this entire story. It is the sad telling of the spiral of chaos. If your personal life is in chaos, unless you're at, in war or something, it is almost always because of sin. And the single best way to stop the chaos is to repent of the sin. It's to take one sin and stop it, kill it, end it, finish it. Only truth can cure the chaos, and it will. Manasseh. One of the later kings of Israel called the most evil king of all the kings. His entire long reign was filled with chaos, sins upon sins. Finally, he was dragged off to Babylon in chains and hooks where he repented. 2 Chronicles 33, 12, when he was in distress, he entreated the grace of Yahweh his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him back again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that Yahweh was God. There is always room to repent. Even the worst of sinners can turn. Maybe you think to yourself, I'm, I've done too much. I've said too much. I've sinned too much. Friend, there ain't no too much with God. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Maybe you should declare today the day you end your chaos. You are not designed to keep on sinning. You can stop and you must stop by the grace of God and the help of his Holy Spirit. Number four and the last one, evil is bent on its own destruction. Evil is bent on its own destruction. In Revelation chapter 17, we read of the great powers of evil turning in upon themselves, the alliance between the prostitute and the beast, the symbols of satanic influence in the world. The alliance between them disintegrates and they turn against each other. And that is true historically again and again and again. Since evil is used for, used for deception, betrayal, murder, arrogance, treachery, boasting, anger, and revenge, then it is of little surprise that the deception and treachery one group of evil men use against their enemies will eventually get aimed at each other. <laughs> Just think of every time in history. <laughs> Abimelech even turns evil against himself. He is so arrogant, he demands his armor bearer kill him so he doesn't have to die at the hand of a woman. That is just, that is just arrogance and pride. 
But men who plot to do evil against others, soon enough they will be doing evil against one another. If you're running around with a crowd of 'er ne'er-do-wells, be assured at some point they're going to turn against you. That's why it is utter folly to run on the path of evil. On the last day, all that is evil in this world will turn against itself like the soldiers of Midian's army. Yesterday we were platoon mates. Now for some reason we're killing each other. In significant ways now and in a complete way at the end, evil loses. Satan is the strong man Jesus spoke about who ends up dividing against himself and plundering his own house. No matter what he promises you, he loses. The gates of hell crack and fall under the onslaught of the church victorious, led by our general, the Lord of armies, Jesus Christ. To which we say amen and amen. That, my friends, takes us to the end of Judges chapter 9. It is not the kind of story you're thinking, hey, I'm going to read this to the kids before bed tonight. <laughs> there's, there's no happy ending. There's, there's no more in the book of Judges years of rest. There's no return to Yahweh here in faith and humility. It is just a sad, sad tale that ends in the death of almost everybody. And things are not going to get better which is why we need a Savior and why maybe this is actually a good story to read around the family dining room because without Jesus, this is what you get. Please pray with me. So our God, we ask for abounding grace, spare us from all the folly and sin we have read of this day. Make our lives shine with righteousness and truth. We ask in the name of our great Savior. Amen.